As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. 
Patrick Tidmarsh is a criminologist and his specialty is sexual assault. He travels the world teaching police how to interview victims of sexual assault and sexual offenders in the hope that he can have some positive impact on the pathetically low rates of conviction in that area. His new book is called The Whole Story and like Patrick, it's not clinical or dispassionate. It's not just a collection of case studies about people we can write off as monsters. The Whole Story is a call to arms. It asks us to play our part in fighting the epidemic of sexual assault in our culture. Patrick Tidmarsh asks us to open our eyes and to see sexual assault, sexual assault victims and sex offenders where they really are, especially when they're in our own homes, and most especially when they are us. He asks us to have the difficult conversations we need to have. He argues that the reason our justice system is failing us on the issue of sexual assault is because it consistently misses the whole story. Patrick Tidmarsh joins us to talk about uncomfortable things. What's your official title? Well, I don't work for VicPol anymore. Yeah, right. Um, my official title when I was there was Principal Practitioner for Family Violence Command and working on the Sexual Offence and Child Abuse Investigation Team. So your listeners may not know, but Victoria has 28 specialist units, 450 specialist trained sexual assault and child abuse investigators. That's we, the sockets? That's the sockets. Yep, we talk a lot about yeah. the sockets. Yeah, the so the sockets are... Uh, the genesis of the sockets is really interesting because I, I think a lot of police forces around the world, I'm going to go and do some work in the UK next year and this year now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny, they're in a similar place, I think we were a, a decade or so ago. So 2004, there was a law reform commission here that looked at the way the system dealt with sexual offending every agency and police got a terrible review, yeah. uh, had lost the confidence of the public and they had cultures of disbelief. I mean, it was a real hammering. And so on the basis of that and Christine Nixon coming on as the first police commissioner yep. and sexual offending and family violence beginning to be seen as actually important crimes that ought to be properly investigated, mm. the sockets grew out of that. And myself and a colleague, Mark Barnett, were, were the first sort of outsiders brought in to work on a specialist training program because traditionally police forces train themselves. You know, you, you, you get a job, you become a detective, you become a boss, then you move to the academy and you teach the same thing to everybody else, mm. which is an absolute recipe for doing the same thing again mm. and again and again, decade after decade. And, yeah. and in relationship-based crime, really everybody was doing it poorly, but Vicpol knew then it was doing it poorly and had to do something different. So that's when we got these jobs. And Mark's job was to improve interviewing of children and vulnerable witnesses. And my job was to improve the interviewing of sexual offence suspects. And along the way, change the method of the training and, if we possibly could, make the culture better. Um, so what, what, what was your sort of your major tip? I mean, we've spoken to a lot of detectives and they talk about yeah. the way that they are uh, speak to suspects, to offenders. Um, Charlie Bazina famously says rapport. You've got to build a rapport. Yeah. And Charlie b builds rapport with other human beings like nobody I've ever known. Yeah, um, like a salesman. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, I talk to forensic pathologists who talk 
oh, who, who get misty-eyed talking about Charlie when Charlie would come into an autopsy with them. I mean, you right, know, just right. this extraordinary. He had a rock star quality. Charlie would, um, you know, would come into the room with them, would would get the scrubs on, would come in. He's yeah. got that sort of um, touch, the likes to get in, involved with people that way. Um, Ron Idles of, obviously has great leadership quality. Yeah. Um, Narelle Fraser has a real, oh, how do you describe it? Well, talk about talk about Ron first. He has a a real ability to empathise and connect with people who are having the worst moments of their lives. So true, yes. And all the good interviewers can do that. He talks about offenders, people who reach out and touch, grab him to confess to him. Yeah. It's like they want him to comfort them as he as they tell him what they've done and he's the guy arresting them. Yeah. Narelle has that quality too. She's kind of the woman you sit next to on the bus and by the end of the trip you've told her everything about your life. Yeah. You know? So interviewers who've got those things, they they care about, they listen to the answers, they care about the person they're talking to, they can connect with them. They're easy, they're easy listeners. They're always the best. And interestingly in policing, they were always there in sexual crime. But they were sort of hidden because the culture said these men are scum. Yes. Uh, these women are lying. You know, wherever you were in the family violence or the sexual offending area, there was a message that said, "Don't even bother." Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the worst case, you know, when, and this is gone now, mercifully. But when I started in in two thousand and seven, which is not that long ago, if you had a family violence case, it wouldn't be unusual to hear, "Oh, why are we bothering? It's just shit versus shit." You know, and so that. Those were the culture, the cultural messages about how important you should make this. Um, like I say, that's kind of dead now, but you can still hear the traces every now and then. And so when we started, you had to go and find the ones that were good interviewers. And there was always one, you know, I think I've written about it in the book. There was always someone, like was a, they'd say, you should go and talk to Smithy. Smithy's great with them. And Smithy, male or female, could always um, sit with someone who's done appalling things listen to their story, connect, build rapport and also had the good technique to know how to ask a question and listen to the answer. Mm. And, well, you guys know you're professional interviewers. Interviewing is about listening. It's not about asking questions really. It's not about talking. It's about hearing what that person's saying and moving the conversation, excuse me, moving the conversation forward. And the really good ones could do that. And so what we tried to do was make that the norm rather than the exception. But we, I mean, we generally talk to nice people. Like how do you sit, can you teach the ability to sit with somebody who you know has been sexually abusing their own children for years and not betray how you really feel about that person? Yeah, you can. You can teach that? Yes and no. So years ago on one of the first courses we ran, I was showing some film of, men in treatment talking about their offending and why they did it and how they did it. And at the end of it, I looked up and there was a detective. He'd stood up um, during the course of the film and he was leaning against the wall at the back of the training room. And I looked at him and said, okay, so do you understand this man? And he was white Mm. with anger. And he said, I will never effing understand him. And, And I said, I... I get that. That's not what I'm asking you, not to empathise with him, but do you see the way he sees the world? Because when you interview him, you'll need to be able to connect with him in the way he sees the world. Otherwise, he's not going to talk to you. 
and he just repeated, I'll never effing um, understand him. And so the message to a guy like that is, if you can't move past that, then no, you're never going to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And at the other end of the spectrum, even the really good ones, so was a young woman detective, fantastic interviewer. She had the gift of the gab, charm the birds from the trees. And this guy was telling her everything in an interview, was babbling away and babbling away. And she asked him how he got into his offending or asked him about the attraction. And he said to her, he looked at her wedding ring and he, wedding ring, and he pointed to it and said, you, you're married, right? And she said, yes, which was probably a mistake. <laughs> Tell them, you know, move on. Don't. But anyway, she, he said, uh, you're married. She said, yes. And he said, you know the way you're attracted to your husband. That's the way I'm attracted to children. And she took it the wrong way and was instantly angry at him, at the suggestion that they were in any way linked. And he read that anger across her face and he stopped talking to her. So sometimes you get caught in the moment. Sometimes they don't have the talent. Sometimes you just get caught out. But you, if you can't move past that and focus on what the interview is for, you'll never be any good at this. And so we do sometimes say to people at the end of training, have you thought about working somewhere else? Yeah. You know, because this is not for you. Yeah, Everything's yeah. not for everyone. Yeah. Do you think people are afraid that uh, if they can find any level of understanding with a person like that, that that means that there's some of it inside them? I do think they're afraid of that. And in, it's a really interesting question because I think most people want to see normal life as one thing and sex offending is something completely different. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it doesn't work like that. It's more it's more that, that there is a, 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 a misalignment. So that, and offenders know that. That's how they, you know, if, if you're an offender and you want to target somebody else's children, they've worked out how to do that by using human nature against those parents or against that child. And most of the things, so if you look at the psychology of offenders, the things that make them do what they do or that they use as excuses for what they do. They are a sense of entitlement, an inability to take responsibility for their behaviour, an inability to deal well in adult relationships so they move to other relationships that they can control, an ability to deceive themselves of the amount of damage that they're doing to the people that they harm and so on and so on. Well, those are really things that we all do to a certain extent, just in a completely different context. So the reality of sexual offending is much more closely connected to to us and our humanity than we might like to think it is. And that's a very uncomfortable thing to have to wrestle with. It's tricky to work in this area and you need to understand yourself and why you're doing it. And then you need to, to get good at it because the better you are at it, the easier it is to feel competent and um, purposeful. Back to your earlier point about yes. you know how we get our sense of purpose in what we do. Yeah. If you know exactly why you're interviewing that complainant and what it is you're trying to get from that, and you know why you're interviewing that suspect, it's much easier to to listen to what they're saying and to sit in what is essentially human misery of one kind or another. Um, and go back to your life. And go back to your life at the end of the day. Yeah, go back to your husband. Yeah. And look at your wedding ring and not see it as polluted by that man yeah. and his comment. Yeah. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about your book is it really makes you look at the ingrained ideas we have mm-hmm. and and you explore that about how actually, you know, it's these attitudes as well that is a barrier to actually getting, um, you know, good investigation and justice for people who 
um, or use the word victims, that's the, the word that you've used in the book. And you opened with a really powerful story about um, a case where a young, a young girl, 14-year-old girl, had been raped by multiple men in a park in the early hours of the morning. And I have not been able to stop thinking about it. And I also do remember the case to a degree, but would you tell us about that and why you use that? It's, it's, I just cannot stop thinking about it because it's, it's the questions that we pose when we hear about these crimes. The, the kind of prejudices we have, and they're often directed at the victim, not the offender. Sure. So it was five or six years ago now, um, and a 14-year-old girl and I think a 16-year-old boyfriend had snuck out of their respective houses in the early hours of the morning to go to a party, and they were coming back through a park before going back to their separate homes. And a group of young men in their early 20s came through the park at the same time. The boy reported that he was physically assaulted and he ran to get help. And the girl reported that she was sexually assaulted and raped by multiple men within the group. And my colleague was doing radio the next day, uh, the senior investigator on the case. And he was talking about what had happened. And the interviewer said, people are phoning in and texting in about this case. Are you prepared to answer some of the texts? And he said, yes. And one of the first texts through said, what's a 14-year-old girl doing out at that time of night? Mm. And he said, I'm surprised by that question. And the interviewer said, why are you surprised? And he said, because I would have thought the first question is, what's a group of young men doing, allegedly, raping a 14-year-old girl? Applause all around the sexual offence units all around Victoria. Mm. Um, and I... I've thought about it a lot since and clearly it's had the same impact on you that why is that the first question? And when I first heard it, I, I imagined a parent, probably a mother, maybe a father, asking that question. I was trying to think beyond the victim blaming of it and think why are they blaming in that way? And my first thought was what they're trying to do is say, please tell me that can't happen to my 14-year-old daughter. And that a lot of times we act out of that instinct of protection and it's much easier to find one thing that, that you can blame it on and tell yourself that the world's really okay mm. instead of absorbing just how awful the world is. Mm. And the follow-up to that is her mother was on uh, Insight a few months later, quite a long time later, I think. And because there'd been multiple men uh, accused who were arrested and charged she was told by the prosecution that there would be, each man would have a lawyer, each man would have a barrister, and that she would be cross-examined by each of them individually. Oh, my God. And she was mm. told that, to quote the mother, the process would be brutal. She withdrew the complaint. Yeah. This can I can I posit another theory also about why we victim blame instead of blaming perpetrators when it comes to these crimes? I think we don't want to face the fact that the, that perpetrators are raised by us and live in our community. I think that, you know, the, these are our sons, brothers, fathers, cousins, neighbours, men we work with, boys we sit next to. Yeah. They're not monsters that come out of sewers at night time. No, they're not. And I think that's really difficult to accept. These are boys and men that we love and live with and like and hang out with and know and raise. 
Every and, time I hear the word monster, I grind my teeth. Right. It's so unhelpful. Yeah. Yep. And so this gang of boys live in that neighbourhood. They are guys who work at the petrol station and the butcher shop and all that. And I think that that is really hard for us to face up to. And, yeah, they're, they're not monsters. They're mm. not, you know, and it's much easier to say girls shouldn't go out in the morning than my son and his friends shouldn't roam around and rape girls at four in the morning much because easier. that's who they are. You know, they are our kids. They are, and I think it, it talks to who men are individually, boys too, having worked with adolescents who offend, boys mm. too, there's a lot of offending from adolescents, but it, it speaks to who they are individually but also collectively because there's some quite interesting phenomena around group culture mm. and sexual offending when there's groups of men together and who the leader of the culture is. To work out which of those young men would have committed a rape or sexual assault if they hadn't been in the company of others yeah. and which of those personalities dominates that culture, which suggests the abusive behaviour, mm. who will immediately support it who will go along with it and doesn't really mind and who really doesn't want to go along with it but will do it anyway because they don't want to move against the culture of the group. Mm. So you've got all those phenomena at play about who we are as men individually and who we are collectively that are really uncomfortable. And we but can't ever have those conversations. You know, I have a son and I would I would find that really valuable to hear from those young men, from their parents, Um you know, what What did you know was going on with your son? What did you know about his friends? Were you worried about his social circle? I, I would, that would be valuable, I think. Those conversations would be valuable to have, but we're not, we don't have those. We're not allowed to have those. The, the perpetrator's family is ashamed. They're never going to come out and write a piece for Mamma Mia about yeah. the lead up to when my son was charged with raping a girl in a park with his mates, you know? Not and yet. Let's hope they do. That would be yeah. I read your piece a while ago. You re, you wrote a piece about uh, pornography and having the discussion yeah. around pornography with your son and made me think about the same thing. You know, we're, we're cowards. Mm. We're not having those conversations. We're not listening to the people who are doing it. We're trying to avoid the, the fractures and the negative messages in our culture about why we are where we are with sexual crime. It's endemic. You know, yes. I mean, you look at look at the numbers. But you know that the conversations I'm having are with my 15 year old daughter, and I am I often catch myself, and I'm ashamed to say it, but I'm like, don't wear that. Do you think you could? Yeah, mm. could you put a different top on? You know, when you're going out, like I talk about consent, we talk about that, but I do find myself saying, yeah, can you just put shorts on that are a bit longer? And I think, why am I saying this? But I feel this, I just feel this need to be saying it and she'll say, mum, why are you like policing my clothing? You're assuming that I'm dressing to attract men. She's like, this is for me. And it's how they like to dress. But I just find myself just going, I, I just feel very uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm having, talking to her constantly about having to change her behaviour. I don't have a son or anything, but I just think I really cringe when I hear myself say it, but I can't help it. I so cannot help saying it. Why are you saying it? Because I'm scared. I'm scared for her. I I trust her, but I don't trust some people around her. And I've got no evidence to back that up, but that's you don't just trust how it men is. And boys. Yeah. 
I think this is that this is our culture, honestly, is that we we're raised not to trust men and boys. We don't think that they, you, sir, we don't uh, think that we we in our, taken. No, <laughs> we we in our culture are raised to believe that men and boys simply don't have the the capacity, the discipline to um to not hurt women. And and as I do have a son, I find myself having to stop myself from saying things like talking about men as though they're dumb animals and having to say to myself, he is one. Mm. You can't say that. Mm. And I don't say that explicitly, but I realise my messaging sometimes yeah. is around this belief that, you know, to a certain degree they're just incapable of, you know, sometimes they're incapable of um, of appropriate behaviour. See, that's not that far away from though boys will be boys. Totally. Which is the mm. excuse for letting yes. them get away with it. That's how I was so, raised and obviously that's the way I guess Emily was yeah. raised. It's a double-edged sword, yeah. isn't it? And, yeah. and, you know, and I've got no, yeah, evidence or experience to, well, you know, of course we've all got experience with things that have happened years ago and blurry lines, but, uh, you know, I'm uh-huh. 45, so, you know, go figure it's happened. But now... There's so much more awareness and I've got great men in my life, father, husband, all that, but I just still can't shake this fear that, yeah, I don't know. See, even then I could, I was feeling like I was hearing you minimise yeah. assaults in your life. All of this is saying to me, sort of take me back to earlier in our conversation when you were saying that the police had this attitude, oh, it's shit against shit or whatever, mm. right? Bad attitude about, way, way in the past about working hard and investigating these cases. But now I think, gosh, it must be hard for them to keep their morale up when the stats are just so against convictions in sexual assault and in, in even getting victims through the process, getting them through court. Like how do they how do they how do you train investigators to keep their motivation up and to just stay the course? Wow. So the criticisms in 2004 were about not listening primarily and not having the knowledge base to understand what they were hearing even if they were listening. Mm. So the SOCAO, which were the uniform members, usually women, um, came in for the least amount of criticism because actually lots of the statement taking was quite good. But then when it got moved to a detective who was usually a man and who had never met the complainant, that's when everything fell apart. So what Vicpol's done, a number of other forces, any force that's doing it well, has prioritised listening, taking statements, doing good interviews, gathering complete evidence as much as they can. Police forces nearly always attract the most criticism, but to a certain extent it isn't fair because even if they were brilliant at their job, and produced briefs of evidence that were powerful and persuasive of what had taken place. There is a phenomenon in the criminal justice system called downstream orientation, and it it basically works like this. So the public holds views and attitudes about sex and sexual offending and punishment and so on, lots riven with myths and misconceptions, and I'm sure we'll talk about them later on. Um, And... So then those members of the public become police officers. So you got your primary problem is you have to make sure they don't hold those views by the time they're listening to these stories. So then the next pressure point comes 
when someone comes in and tells their story and it might be confusing, like why did she wait two weeks to report or why did you keep going around to the guy's house or how drunk were you? So they've got all those elements that say, oh, gee, this one's going to be hard to persuade someone. So if you can get over that hurdle, then you get it to the senior officer who says, right, now we need to determine, is there a reasonable prospect to conviction? This is kind of chilling term in a way. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason? Mm -hmm. Who knows what the answer to that question is? But you ask a lawyer <laughs> who's prosecuting, their view uh, will probably be the one that the, in, the police officer is holding in mind mm -hmm. and thinking, well, what will they think? Rather than making their own decision about what they think, they'll go, well, what will the prosecutor think? Because the prosecutor's thinking, well, what will the juror think? Yeah. Which brings you right back to the beginning with the general public who sit on juries and who hold those myths and misconceptions. And there's right. loads of information about how many we hold, why we still hold them, about why do they continue relationship, why weren't there injuries that people expect mm. there to be, why has their memory got that gap in it and not this gap and so on. Yeah. Um, and until we, one, understand how many mis misconceptions that there are, but two, and I think more importantly, realise that the biggest blocker in the system is actually us. Our society's attitudes changing because we were also talking earlier about the fact that our kids who are all sort of early teens or mid-teens now would be horrified at all of this. Mm. Our kids yeah. are very, think very differently. They'd be disappointed in you two. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Yeah. They would. And and yeah. their vocab is different. Yeah. Their whole understanding of um their of expectations or you know are just very mm. different. And I do believe that they would follow through. I do believe they well, would. Well look tell who's someone, leading the charge. I mean it's yeah. Grace Tame, Chanel yeah. Contos, Brittany Higgins. The vast majority of people are offended by people they know, but 85% plus. So you know there's a relationship there of some kind or another. Of the 15% that happen out in public space, the majority of those people are known to each other as well. Oh. So I won't say that sex offending out, you know, from strangers is rare because it's not that rare, but it's a very small proportion relatively of, of sex offending. So you know that those people knew each other for a period of time and that that relationship, I mean, if you're good at investigating this, that actually is where the evidence is. And a lot of the time, the evidence that's most impactful, that changes our minds or helps us understand what took place, happens before the offending itself even begins. Yeah. It's in that preparation, what we know is grooming. Um, and I mean, grooming is often misunderstood in some ways. I think a lot of people think grooming is just about the sexual element of the relationship. But actually, it's the power and control and authority elements that are much more important they're what stop people reporting, they're, um, they're what keep people involved in relationships that are damaging them and so on. So fight, flight, freeze, surrender, I think is our, our, our shorthand of telling people, whether they're police investigators or the public, that the world is actually not round the way they think it is. It's completely upside down. Because when we ask any group, Take aside political correctness, what would you like a victim of sexual crime to do? Their answers are either fight back or run away. Mm. And that is a relatively rare response, mostly because by the time someone makes that choice, it isn't really a choice anymore. It's an inevitability because of the manipulation in the relationship. And we generally only fight back or run away in a split moment before our brain can tell us that we need to think about it. Mm. So it's an immediate instinctive decision, um, certainly fighting. Running away, and I wrote about it again in the book, I, I, 
hundreds of jobs and very, very few times has someone run away. And the only times they have is when there was a clear path to safety or someone interrupted in some way so they could go to that person. It's, it's quite rare. So the most typical response is freeze behavior is really interesting. Now, tonic immobility, it's called, if any of your listeners want to look it up, tonic immobility. It's been studied for decades in animals and humans and including in, in rape victims. And so it's now quite commonly argued in court that freeze behavior is is typical. Is this um, what we, we talk about colloquially as rabbit in the headlights? Sort of. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we humans tend to do under threat is nothing until we understand the nature of that threat and how to survive it. So it's been successfully argued in Australian courts for a while now that so defence is finding it harder to get you know that in as, as, as an anomaly in some way. But I think the one we find hardest, that's back to a number of the elements of the conversation we've had already, is this idea of submission or surrender or compliance mm. that it feels so awful to acknowledge that that is the most typical behaviour, but it is. And you see it in family violence, you see it in child sexual abuse, you see it in adult sexual assault and rape. The most typical response is to um, do nothing and comply because it's what our survival mechanisms tell us to do. Mm. You mean mm. like kind of wait for it to be over, that kind of? Yeah, li live through it, live through it, yeah. survive it, survive it. You know, I'm thinking of one, one case we... Um, I can't remember what happened with it now, whether it got prosecuted or not. I wish I could. But uh, a woman, it was an acquaintance rape and they had been out together for dinner, went back to one or other place. She didn't want very much in the relationship. He wanted sex. And by the time she realised he was going to do it anyway, she reached into her handbag, got a condom and said, if you're going to do it, put that on. Yeah. And no, it didn't get prosecuted now, I remember it, because of that conversation about how on earth will we persuade a jury that that isn't a consensual moment yeah. rather than a survival moment. And in a way for me, that's a kind of benchmark. If we can get, every time that happens, we can get a jury to understand it as a sensible survival mechanism of behaviour um, and has nothing to do with consent whatsoever, mm. then maybe the system's moved on <laughs> and improved. Yeah. And um, that makes me wonder, and obviously I don't know anything about that victim or or anything about her life, but all of this is making me wonder about um, how a person's history can affect the way they react in, in a situation and how um, how it can be that victims can be targeted by multiple offenders. And we've talked to victims about this before. It's, it's, a, it's a topic that comes up oftentimes because we know that people can say, oh, I ended up being victimised by a number of perpetrators and I don't know why and I used to think it's me. I attract them. I Do I do something? And it's just a, obviously an awful situation but it's not uncommon, is it? Not at all. And it do, is there any kind of understanding academically about how this happens? And and I always wonder: is it um, is there a certain kind of way that if someone's been really successfully groomed once, perhaps as a younger person, is it almost as though the grooming is already done when another perpetrator comes along and they can kind of recognise that, or is it that 
I don't know, you're already fearful that if you say no, you'll be hurt so you don't ever say no again or like, I don't know. It's a delicate subject, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you've got listeners who have lived experience here, I want to be careful not to suggest that they have a a mark upon them or they have a mechanism that... Or that there's one answer to my question, I guess. No, that no, because there isn't. So I think the most important thing to say Mm. is that offending starts with offenders. Yes. And... Oftentimes when we listen to a story, we're actually judging the victims. As one well, that's the only answer, right? The, the, the only thing we know for sure is that it's never, it's never the victim's fault and that's the main thing is like they can come away from this situation thinking it must be me because mm. nothing else makes sense when in actual fact we know obviously it's not them. So there is... Yeah. Yeah. And if they're reporting to a police force that doesn't know what it's doing, mm. as one very honest senior officer in a different country said to me just the other day, she said, effectively, we're investigating victims now. We're not investigating suspects mm-hmm. because we're looking at them to go, well, where's the problem with this story? Mm-hmm. That, with that? And so their, their job now is to change their culture around and their thinking around and have offender-focused investigations because of, it isn't that she keeps finding the wrong man. The wrong man finds her. And so there is an element of the answer to your question that is, Yes, they will find vulnerability. They yeah. will test vulnerability and either find it or create it. And so if there's been damage that they haven't worked through in some way or another, then he'll see it, offender will see it in, in a way that, I mean, there are people who see vulnerability and want to protect it. Yeah. And there are people who see vulnerability and want to exploit it. Mm. And obviously here we're talking about the exploiters. Yeah, and... Um, I guess if you have enough girlfriends, you might eventually find one who, you know, shows the fearful response that you're looking for, for example, and things like that, that you can then keep working on. Yes. Or you can move. So the one I use in training is a massage therapist story. Mm. Um, And he, he has a routine to manipulate. So when the new client comes in, uh, target, I suppose, in his mind, he will make a slightly inappropriate comment. He will tell them to take all their underwear off. He will not leave the room at dressing time but simply turn his back. He will move through a series of small mm. tests to see, well, what, how are they reacting to that? And if they don't go, are you going to leave the room or, no, I think I'll keep my underwear on, thank you, or do you have any ones I can put on instead? Or yeah, if they don't challenge the rhythm of his process, mm. then he'll keep going um, to the point of offending. And most offenders have some version of that, that testing process. There's two 5% that are really useful for everybody listening to know if they don't already, and I'm sure most of them do. But So false reporting comes up a lot. Yes. And... What do you mean by that? Does it? It doesn't happen a lot, but the idea of it comes. The up The idea a lot. of it comes up yeah, a lot. It does. Yeah. But actually, the reality of false reporting is only about five percent. And okay. of that five percent, I think a lot of people think that's a malicious five percent. But the biggest group in there are people with mental health problems. And oftentimes, when we get those stories in, and what they're saying is provably false, they're actually trying to tell the investigator something that either historically or contemporaneously has happened to them, they're just not able to articulate it. And malicious false reporting is way smaller than most people think it is. So for me, that's a really important 5% to remember. The other 5% that's useful and connected to to this story is that 
when Mark and I looked at the figures of, with that expectation that if something bad happened to you, you'd immediately go and tell someone. So most people think you should report immediately. Mm. So we looked at one in eight women reporting sexual assault or rape. And it's harder to tell with children, but say one in ten children talking. Then we looked at all the people who'd reported to Vicpol in that year and an immediate report is classified here and in lots of police forces within 72 hours of the event itself. And then we looked at the numbers that had reported within 72 hours. We found of the total numbers, only about 5% report straight away. So it is much more likely that people will wait um, to see whether they want to, what the consequences might be. And of course, the longer we wait, the less likely we are to tell. So in that particular story, she waited two weeks. She phoned her sister immediately afterwards and her sister said, you've got to go to the cops. And she said, oh, nah. I, I, and the reason she said she didn't was she, she wasn't sure they'd believe her. She was worried they'd think she'd gone for a happy ending and it had all gone wrong or some kind of awful um, misjudgment like that. And then she thought, I'll stuff it, I'll just get over it. And she found very quickly she was struggling to sleep. Then she stopped eating and she had a job she loved and it wasn't until she drove to work, parked her car and couldn't get out of the car because she was shaking and sobbing that she thought, fuck this, I'm going to the cops. And in some ways that used to be seen as a problem with investigators. Oh, what are we going to do about the two-week wait? But actually for me, I think that that is something that is relevant evidence we can explain to someone and say, this is why she waited two weeks. That's actually quite typical behaviour and very understandable behaviour. I don't think it gives us a problem at all. Mm -hmm. But historically, we used to kind of hide those things. Like we'd hide the fact that there were no injuries. We'd hide the fact that she waited two weeks or there was an inconsistency. Whereas now, you know, good investigators know, don't hide it, explain it. Ask her why. And I found her story of waiting two weeks utterly compelling. And at the end of that, she didn't even need to tell me about the offending in some ways because you tell me what happened afterwards, completely absorbed, mm. and I would have thought, yep, good. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Thank you to the following patrons. Julia Cash, Amanda Borshop, Eileen Walsh-Thomas, Amanda Fernley, Jessica, Kara Mockett and Jasmine Kasicki. I just keep thinking, well, what is the answer? Like, how is this going to change? Right. Two minutes go. Mm. Let's start in the justice system, I think, because in some ways that's the, that's the easiest. If we... Like the Swedes, for example, we have affirmative, they have affirmative consent, as we now have in Tasmania and New South Wales, um, coming into Victoria. But they've gone further than that. They have changed laws now. So rather than just rape and sexual assault, they have, what, they have negligent rape and negligent sexual assault. So the expectation on anyone um, engaging in sexual relationships is that they must have ne- um, communicated with the other person to determine whether or not they were consenting to that. And if they didn't, that will lay them open to a charge of negligent rape or negligent sexual assault. And, of course, obviously you can prosecute the more serious tariff of uh, rape and sexual assault as well. So they've decided to educate their young people and adults in consent and sexual relationships. I mean, they've been doing it for, for decades, I think, better than most places in the world. So from kindergarten up... Uh, Sex is seen as a part of relationships, and so consent is effectively taught from kindergarten onwards and how to negotiate, how to communicate. So there's a cultural effort uh, at one end to change uh, or maintain positive relationships, and at the other end there are clear and significant punishments that are much likely, much more likely to be prosecuted than the bigger charges. Because one of the issues with right back to your uh, comment you made before about, oh, they were both so drunk and or they were this or whatever excuse people have got. If you're going to make a judgment that someone's committed a rape, that carries a huge sentence mm-hmm. potentially. So sometimes you'll hear jurors in studies say, I'm pretty sure he was guilty, but I didn't think the punishment fitted the crime. Mm-hmm. And I think the Swedes have kind of taken that on board and, and said, well, right, well, we'll make the punishment fit that crime because not all rapes are the same. I mean, to a certain extent they are. They're all acts against consent. They're all acts of violence to a certain extent. But but within that, there's a wide variety and they've recognised that some are easier to prosecute than others and so they've shifted their laws. To pick up on the education, I mean, if you looked at someone like Marie Crabbe's site, It's Time We Talked, the way she talks about pornography and, and uh, I spent 14 years running a programme for young people who have sexual behaviour problems and sexually offend. And they knew an awful lot about offending in some way or another, but they didn't really know about sex and they 
really didn't know about relationships. That's the thing about wow. porn, isn't it? And I was just, the kids and I were talking about that the other night. And then I know I always go, I always kind of probably pitch it a little tiny bit too old for them. But right. um, because the other night we were talking about, I, I love the idea that the Swedes begin at kinder because I think, you know, sex doesn't begin with penetrative sex. It begins with holding hands, with kissing, with all of those things that begin really little. And it's like when you, people used to force kids to kiss other people. Give him a kiss. Give Uncle Rob a cuddle. All yeah. that. And we used to force yeah. them, you know, and now we know better. We don't do that anymore. But asking for consent to kiss somebody, kiss your little friend at kinder and all that, that's important, isn't it? Because yeah. that's the beginning of the idea of respect and consent. And I was saying to the kids the other night, and they hated it, but that porn isn't sex it is not normal. You know what brought up the conversation actually was Billie Eilish. Did you read yeah. Billie Eilish's mm, comments yes, about yes. it? Yes. And they were so brilliant when she said that she saw porn as a young kid. It was disturbing. She wished it had never happened. It ruined her brain, she said. It ruined her first sexual experiences. And we were talking about that. And I said to the kids, you've got to understand it's it's like the difference between the zoo and Jurassic Park. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's you know. That's very true. Um, the zoo is real animals, Jurassic Park is dinosaurs. Well, sex is one thing and porn is stupid. It's ridiculous. Mm. But you can't look at porn and think when I have sex, it's going to be like that. That is not real. And the access to it, it's like back in the day right. you might see a penthouse or something, that was it. Right. Now it's like so pick it, up the phone, yeah, anything you want. It doesn't surprise want. me that young sex offenders wouldn't actually know a lot about Sex. Mm. No. She also said that she did things she'd rather not have done because they were a part of that and as she got older and reflected on it, she wished she hadn't done them. And she Billie did Eilish them. did. Yeah, because she was, mm. she'd, she'd seen them. And I think, look, pornography has also changed quite a bit in the last 10, 15 years. It's clearly much more aggressive now um, and that kind of normalising of, of a aggression in porn is really quite yeah. quite disturbing and dangerous. And it's interesting, I read an article just the other day about how the younger generations now are having quite a bit less sex than we did in my generation, mm. and I'm a bit older than you, but in yours too, mm. um, and marking out that, that a reaction to porn is a part of that and seeing mm. that as quite scary and, and not something I want to engage in. Yeah. Mm. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised either. No. When we started the program working with young people. So we started in 1993, we started the Male Adolescent Program for Positive Sexuality, we called it, because we didn't want to call it the Sex Offender Program. And when we started in 93, there wasn't an internet. So they were, mm. you know, yeah. getting it out of their dad's cupboard or yeah, their the... older brother or whatever it was. Um, but by the time I went to work for Big Pole in 2007, every kid was using internet and yeah. porn then. And I'm sure that's, that's um, at least stayed the same, if not got worse. Totally. The question then is how many of them would be offending if they hadn't come across pornography? And I think there is no doubt that it is having an influence mm. and creating more offending than would be the case if it weren't. And some of that is the availability and some of that is the nature of it, the, the choking, um, physical abuse uh, as seen as, as a part of that, as part of the thrill of that. Young people trying to navigate that, particularly if they haven't had a solid grounding in, mm. in, yes. in relationships and consent and, and, and had education that pornography, how to manage pornography, it's going to confuse some and young And someone people. needs to tell them that women don't really like that because 
honestly, in pornography, it's portrayed as um, enjoyable for everybody. And I think there's a, a growing misunderstanding for young men in particular that that the, a lot of those acts are enjoyable, that a lot of debasing acts and mm. acts that are frankly painful for women are enjoyed in the in the movies in the in the pornography are enjoyable and i think then there's that young women are taking on this idea that oh I'm, that's i must be the only person who doesn't like yeah. it and then so it's this real really practical subversion i think that's gone on out there from when i speak to people um it's really bizarre and and i'm like aren't your parents talking to you like people need to say that's not real guys no it isn't and Oh, Marie was, um, I recommend it's time we talk to yeah. get, get everyone go there. But I remember her telling me a story of doing a lecture in a school and one of the girls challenging her when she talked about rough sex um, being, um, you know, absolutely everywhere in pornography. She said, what's, the girl said, what's wrong with, with rough sex? And her answer, her answer was better than one I'm going to give. But if I remember it roughly, it was, it isn't that some people don't like it. It's that it's everywhere and it's seen to be normal mm. and actually way fewer people. So anal sex, for example, is everywhere in pornography. But when you ask people whether they practice that in, in their own lives, mm. I think the figure is about 15% That's of people yeah. roughly yeah, say, yeah, it's a part Patrick, of our sexual I'm practice. I'm so glad you brought yeah. up anal sex. Um. I've been dying for <laughs> Not a lot of people say that. No, well, well, again, we don't hang out enough because, um, because that is a classic example to me. It's like. People now think that is normal sex, right? That that's just part of that's ABC, like that's third base. Yeah, I'm yeah. like kids, no third base. Like that's what I'm Crikey. saying to you. How many bases are there? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It, I think the bases. It's are the definitely same, but they something changed. with consent between two consenting adults. You would certainly build up to that over a time, and maybe even. I don't know. Months. Oh, no, I know from days and special occasions. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but yeah, it's it's not straight off when you're like you know a young like teenagers. Yeah. Saying, yeah. Oh no no no! It's every single time, and it's you know it's it's just part of the the menu. Like yeah no. That's what I'm trying not to say. Not my like, menu. I don't bring it up with the kids specifically, yep. anal. But I am saying to them, that's not. Please understand. Yeah. That's not normal. That's not what every couple's doing. It's not no. normal. But I think there is a. It's just subverted the paradigm yes. in people's minds about the basics. The same to do body shape and changing body shape and pubic hair. Um, pubic yeah. hair. It's now seen as a fetish. So. I talk about pubic hair yeah. all the time with my, sound makes it sound weird, but my beautician will say, I ask her, you know, you go in for a bit of a tidy up. I'm like, what do most people get? She goes, all off. What's the one that's all off? Triple X strip, Brazilian. Yeah. She goes, not I many think people have. technically a little landing yeah. strip. But what's the one? Go. But but often she goes, yeah, the young young girls don't want pubic hair because of what they see. In... They don't know. Yeah, that comes from porn, oh, which is just like, to get a better shot. But I do often say to the girls, it's very natural. It's protective. It's just you know, it's all you know. What was the thing that it came out of the French brothels? Oh, I can't remember. It was to, it was to make the girls look younger. That's what it was. Mm. That's where it came from initially. It was to and there's, I think, for me, the most disturbing yeah. of, of, course. of all of that yeah. is just. Yeah, that we're blurring. That. If you look, if you look at what's available online, for me, the most well, there are a number of disturbing elements. But, um, and I'm not against pornography per se, or certainly I wouldn't want to move no. to that. Let's ban nudity and ban mm. expressions of sex. I, I, it's not about that. It's more about looking at what it's influencing because 
porn is setting the context for young people in particular understanding sex. And so um, we need to be able to talk to them about that. But if you were to go online and just type porn into your search engine, the first and biggest category by far would be teen. I know. It normalises all these weird things like stepmother and brother-sister and yeah. like all of those things come up in like general searches. You don't have to go and look for them. But I mean, I was like probably 17 when I saw porn for the first time, you know. And um, really, and really. I found it educational, yeah, believe me. Yeah. But I mean, right. imagine being 11 and yeah. and it wasn't this kind of porn, you know. No, it this awful, aggressive, yeah. violent stuff. I mean, two things really. If people are listening to this and they have lived experience um, or they know someone has lived experience, I, I've been working with students for the last couple of years and... I have been shocked after all these years working in sexual crime. I have been shocked at at the amount of abuse happening to young women. Mm. I knew it was there, but when you work with students all the time, just seeing it and feeling the anguish and the just how much is happening, I really hope that these movements taking place now, particularly with young women leading the way, make make a difference. And I'm also aware that institutions are still lagging behind and trying to protect themselves with lawyers or put policy in but not really enact it. So the answer, to go back to your question before about what do we do about all of this, is we look at everything. We look at our own courage and our own honesty. We look at the conversations we're having at that basic level with our children. We give a lot more money to kindergarten teachers and teachers and yeah. anyone working with families and yeah. children mm. First seven years of life, all of that. That's right, because we can't just suddenly turn around and say to men, you know, 14-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 30-year-olds, oi, um, it's consent from now on. Away you go. Yeah. Mm. When you they've know? been exposed to porn at a young age and can yeah. they reasonably be expected to be responsible for things they do when they're teenagers if they've been no, exposed to or, that. Or to, to women, you know, we can't yeah. just suddenly say to human beings, oh, these, these are the rules around yeah. respect and this yeah. is what you should expect and this is how you should treat women. And it's like we were saying before, you know, they need to be learning that from the day they're born. Mm. Don't you shudder now to think about like forcing little kids to kiss and hug I people? Do. They do. Even I do. sit on Santa's knees. Yeah, is all that stuff when they didn't want oh. to. So what interests me though is what your daughter said when you question what she was wearing. I mean, she's just not going to put up with that anymore, is she? And I love it because I'm like, yes, I sort of feel confident because yeah. she's just called, she calls me out on it. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. And my husband's actually, he's far more, um, like he's just, he never says stuff to her like that, which I love, but I'm the one, it's me. I'm the one going, oh, can you not buy so many crop tops? Maybe get well, something think, that covers up, you know. I don't, think I don't men know. understand the fear. I think it goes back to that idea of, you know, when Eurydice Dixon died and those moments and I am Asawi, yeah. when we would be so frustrated and saying, you don't get it. You don't get what mm. it's like to not be able to go places and do things because you're scared. You don't know what it's like to have to think, oh, is it too late to go for a run? Is it too oh, late yeah, to. Oh, yeah, exactly. Oh, I can't we don't get it though. Home. We don't. No, we don't because we don't guts. move. We don't move through the world in the same no. way. Yeah, we don't. You know, um, and I remember that lady. Someone posted online about her friend said, "Oh God, it's just my favorite thing to walk home from uni at night listening to, you know, my al- my favorite album." 
And she was just like, fuck you. You just have no idea how privileged that is. Like I could never do that. Listen to headphones and walk home at night from uni. That's one of my hopeful things working with yeah. students is when in, in one of, um, I can't identify it, but in, in a particular area of, of the uni, when the young women explained what you were just talking about, mm. like what it's like to be us mm. and what pisses us off when you say this or do that, that year group went, right, we're not, we're, that won't happen here. And so that group kind of went through their next two years of uni altogether where the young men and the young women were, as far as one could tell, in lockstep with what was going to be considered okay and what was not right. and what would happen if anyone crossed that line. So I think what I'm also hopeful about young men when they hear what is and isn't okay and we're, and we're talking to them from early ages, they are generally receptive. I mean, most of the young men that I grew up with and most of the men that I know now are very receptive to this and, and absolutely mm. do not want to behave in a way no. yeah. that is uh, yeah. offensive, obnoxious or, 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 or dangerous. Yeah. But we've got to work at it, I think, and we really have to listen to what Billie Eilish and, mm, very powerful, and others are saying and do something about it. Patrick Tidmarsh's book, The Whole Story, is available now. If you're in immediate danger in Australia, you should call triple zero. If you want to report a sexual assault within Australia, you can call 1800 RESPECT 24 7 on 1800 737 732. You can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Thanks to the following patrons Jamie, Jamie Lee Egan, Susie Wolfe, Catherine Londrigan, Sarah LaRose, Tom Sheridan, Hayley Tolcher, and Sally Dowd. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.